women are starting businesses at a really rapid rate and they need to be resourced the same way other founders are resourced. And I think for investors, this comes down to also asking like, what are the questions I'm asking this founder? And are they the same questions that I'm asking a male founder? And what are the assumptions that I'm making? And really just kind of all of us digging into our own biases because we all have those. And, you know, at the end of the day, we all know that the numbers add up and 1% is just unacceptable and unexcusable. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Hey everyone, it's really great to be here. My name is Jamie Kim. I'm a coach at Reboot and I'm also the creator of The Third, a group coaching experience for women. A lot of my inspiration for The Third came from my clients, Bunny and Taryn. They told me how much they were needing a meaningful and productive space with women just like them and not really being able to find it. Bunny and Taryn are founders of Bloom, a company that I believe is out to change the world by changing the way young women experience themselves. I really love what they do. I love how they do it and their reasons for their pursuit. To me, they're a really great example of the dynamic 21st century leader that I feel like the world needs so much more of right now. And Bunny and Taryn are here with me today. So I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you both. I mean, what we're gonna talk about means a lot to me personally. Like, what's it like to be a woman of color founder today? What's the importance of feminine leadership and why caring for the self is actually essential. But before we begin, I thought it would be kind of fun and different to share with our audience who we come from. So I come from Sunjin Kim and Jungkook Kim. They're my parents, they're both Korean and I'm a first generation Korean Canadian. My father Sunjin, who also often goes by SJ, grew up in Tokyo, Japan and he had to hide his Korean identity for his survival while he was there. That experience had a really big effect on him. In fact, he ended up writing a book about it. Growing up, my father always encouraged me to see the other side. He often explicitly made me do that, which I didn't always appreciate in the moment, but now I'm so glad that he did. My mother gave herself the name Coco when she immigrated to Canada. She grew up in Korea, the eldest daughter of six, and didn't get to pursue a higher education. She was arranged to marry my dad when she was 19. And a year after that, she had my brother. She worked a full-time job, kept our home together, while also taking care of my grandparents, who ended up immigrating to Canada soon after we did. Witnessing her, I learned what it means to care for others through your actions. My parents, my ancestors, they really had to master the art of adapting and working with whatever they had. And that makes me really proud of who I come from. What about you, Bunny and Taryn? Who do you come from? Um, I'm Taryn, and I come from Parmjeet and Perminder Gachwara, who come from Punjab, a state in northern India. And my parents are also Bunny's parents, as we're sisters, sisters and co-founders. Like Jamie's parents, my parents are both immigrants and also entrepreneurs. They immigrated to Canada in their early 20s as newlyweds. And when I was growing up, I saw my father working two full-time jobs. And I remember 
waiting up till 1am sometimes at the top of the stairs for him to come home from work because sometimes it was the only time in the day I saw him. But despite how hard they worked, they still did everything they could to be there for us, be amazing parents, and to ensure that we received the education that they didn't. And so as an entrepreneur today, I draw from the strength of their teachings and also from the wisdom of my grandparents who lived with me growing up, who also raised me. Um, All of these people did not have formal educations, but they always worked hard and they were connected deeply to, I feel they were connected deeply to the world around them, the earth, and they taught me presence. Uh, Today, I'm also a co-founder of Bloom. And a big part of what led to creating Bloom was finding out how many girls were actually missing school in India back home due to their period. Many girls are missing almost a quarter of their schooling, which led to dropping out early. The economic impact of that is insane. Um, So just kind of thinking about the fact that that easily could have been me if my parents didn't immigrate. So that's become a really big part of our mission here at Bloom. Yeah, so let's talk about Bloom. Could you share the Bloom story, maybe a little bit about how it all began? Yeah, so we actually started working on the very first iteration of Bloom in 2016. I was an accounting student, Taryn was studying law, um, and she had the idea for a monthly delivery service of organic pads and tampons. After we learned about the harmful ingredients in the mainstream products that we've been using for so long and the lack of access to better for you products in Canada, which is where we live. And around that same time, as we were kind of diving into exploring this, um, I was diagnosed with PCOS, which is something that one in 10 women experience. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of you know education or resources for me to understand more about what that meant. And so we dove in headfirst um, into this idea of a monthly delivery of organic period products. We were students. We only had a few hundred dollars and credit cards. Um, and we did everything we could to learn about the stale femhi industry and find a way to disrupt it. And so in the early days, um, it was just the two of us. We were working part-time jobs in school at the time and just pretty much doing whatever we had to do to get organic period products to the houses of our customers. And so throughout this, we stayed, you know, as close to our customer as we possibly could. We learned as much about her as she was willing to share with us, um, everything about why she needed these products, what was hard for her currently, how the current options in the market failed her, and also just about her personal life and who she was and where she came from and what she cared about. And so by learning what we could from the segment of customers that we had, We actually used all of that information and launched the version of Bloom that you see today. And the brand that exists today, Bloom, is to change the stat that 63% of girls and women feel their self-esteem plummet as they go through puberty. But of course, starting out, we were, you know, creating something from nothing. We grew up in a suburban neighborhood right outside of Vancouver. Um, we were packing boxes from our bedrooms and our basement for three years. Um, and we continued to hold on to our part-time jobs for as long as we could so that we could fund the business um, with the you know little amount of extra cash that we had. And I think in some cases, the fact that we were so naive and that maybe we didn't necessarily come from a huge network of startup entrepreneurs or or even resources, it often felt like a hurdle at the time. But in some ways, I think we're grateful for that naivety and it really allowed us to not feel overwhelmed by what was to come and instead just continue pushing forward in the excitement of what could possibly be. Hmm. How many times have you told that story? 
the bloom story do you feel like um we've told it a few times but this is the first time we've told it i think in relation to who we are and where we come from mm-hmm. and i think that matters a lot um for taryn and i and our personal wise and and what really drives us to keep um, the business going and the mission going and, and really ties it to something that is bigger than, you know, just the two of us. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. 2020 was a really hard year, obviously, but you're a consumer brand. So you felt the blow of COVID-19 in a pretty specific way. You know, can you remember what that all felt like at the very beginning? So for me, um, not only was this, you know, our first crisis as a startup or as a business owner, it was also, I think, probably the biggest crisis um, that I've experienced in my own lifetime. I was, you know, too young to experience and really understand the effect that some previous crises had to our communities. And so not only was I experiencing COVID-19 as a young business owner, I was also experiencing it alongside of so many other young people who are trying to understand how to navigate a crisis and, and where they fit into it and what that means for our futures. But I think the interesting thing is that we were well aware and COVID-19 was top of mind for us in January when our pre-Chinese New Year production runs all got delayed and pushed out um, due to the pandemic hitting China first and their response, which was a total lockdown. And I think at that point, we were so unclear and uncertain about what you know a pandemic in China means for us in Canada and US and just confused by the lack of communication and action that we felt like we were receiving. But I think... And and Jamie, I'm sure you recall in the conversations we were having that it was just a flurry of what ifs and, you know, questions of when is this going to be over? What should we be focusing on? What really matters right now? And and what does this mean for all of us in our futures? And I think that those thoughts were all consuming um, for the first little while. Mm -hmm. And, And what was that like for the team? What was it like to connect and manage the emotions um, of the, of the folks that are on your team and managing your own emotions during that time? Yeah. So I was in San Francisco and New York for most of February, 2020, raising our series A. And I remember talking to the team over zoom and making the decision to shift to work from home very early on and cutting my trip short to return back to Vancouver because of COVID. And this was in early March. So we had a signed term sheet for our Series A. um, But I knew at the time, based on like what, you know, what Bunny just said, kind of what we knew, um, that I didn't want to allow myself to feel any relief yet as as anything, like everything was so uncertain at that time. Um, So when we kind of first started all shifting to work from home and the situation became more dire, At first, the adrenaline kicked in. So I think I I was maybe a little bit even out of touch with my actual emotions um, and was Mm. maybe more so focused on action at that time. And almost like this motherly instinct kicked in about the business of like taking an inventory of, you know, where are we at and how could this affect us and doing all this various scenario planning. um, Because like Bunny said, we had never actually um, encountered a crisis like this. And there were words being thrown around like, black swan event and uh, unprecedented. I think we all heard that word like millions of times. Um, So for me, I think top of mind, like first was closing this deal. And we'd always had it ingrained in us that a deal is never done until the money is in the bank. So that really tied in 
to the team for me because it was like, how are we going to take care of all these people and this business? So when it came to, I think the team's emotions, it was about communicating these unknowns to them as best as we could. And weeks kind of felt like months, but it was weighing transparency versus shielding from bad news. And I think in the end, in most cases, we really went with 100% transparency and then our plan for how to deal with each blow. And we did communicate on a daily basis with the team and we just felt this immense weight and responsibility for how to show up for them at the time. And I think in some ways, and Jamie, you know this because you were working with us, that was to the detriment of maybe our own emotions. Um, So in hindsight, that's something we could have done better on, Uh, but it was just what had to be done at the time with everything that was going on. Hmm. So if you could go back and do it differently, what do you think you would have done differently? So I was actually talking to Bunny about this earlier. I think knowing what we knew, I do think transparency was still the right direction to go because I think that allowed our team to really become closer together and just more tight knit. Um, So I would have definitely been just as transparent I probably would have increased my coaching hours with you looking back, (laughs) (laughs) truthfully. Um, Bunny, what about you? What would you have done differently? I think, I think one thing for sure would have been to zoom out a little bit more. I think the thing that maybe wasn't clear to me at the time is that this isn't for the short term by any means. And I know like now looking back and even, even last March, it was kind of like, well, obviously this wouldn't be short term, but I think the reality of how long term this actually is and what the effects are going to be for years to come yet, maybe I didn't realize fully in March and April and and just what direction our world is going in and what that means. And so I think if I could go back looking at March, really just zooming out and being like, how can I prepare for the next two years, not just the next six months? Um, and, and we did that a little bit later on, um, and, and we're doing that now going forward and really looking at the longer term picture. But I think just at the time it was so unclear and uncertain. And, you know, a lot of people were saying that we're going to be in lockdown only for a month and things will be okay by the summertime and, and all these things. And I think, you know, in some places around the world, that's true. They, you know, they were able to go back to normal far quicker than, um, North America was, but that wasn't our reality. And I think obviously none of us had a a magic, um, crystal ball to look into, but I I do wish that I had looked at things as more two or three years versus several months. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of where you are, are now, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, talking a little bit about women were being disproportionately underfunded in 2020 feels like a good place to go. You know, even pre-COVID, only somewhere around 1% of funding went to BIPOC women founders. So you have a bit of firsthand experience that speaks to this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think for us, um, like I said, that that deal was top of mind, um, which looking back, like I said, we had kind of approached it as the money's never in the bank until it's in the bank um, and it's wired, even if there's a term sheet signed. So in, in that instance, we had signed the term sheet with this investor 
um, just around the time that COVID was actually declared a global pandemic. And then we spent the next 30 days, so really the first 30 days of the pandemic, on due diligence. And it was probably about 12 to 15 hours a day of putting together documentation, files, phone calls. Um, And on the 30th day of due diligence, this investor pulled out of the deal. And this was one of the most painful experiences that I've ever had as a founder, not only because they pulled out of the Series A, but also just, you know, as we talked about, the state of the world. I think the great thing is we had so many wonderful people around us to support and we weren't completely shocked by this. It was happening around us and we're not the only ones. It's just something that's not talked about enough. And so because we had already begun to really prioritize the team and community, we were able to come out of this um, in, a, in a really positive way, I would say. Uh, but to tie that back to your question, Jamie, and the big picture, women were disproportionately underfunded in 2020. And actually in 2020, funding numbers were, were really high. So it's not like VC funding declined in 2020 overall. It's just funding to um, women founders was was pretty dismal in 2020. So one thing I'm really grateful for is that our existing founders or our existing investors are amazing and they were able to bridge us. Um, of course, not the, the Series A that we had planned, but they were able to bridge us a smaller round and we were kind of able to regain our footing. But um, yeah, I think from what we've seen of those stats so far, um, we could have done better overall for female mm-hmm. founders. For sure. For sure. There was one thing that you had said to me once about like being in that 1%, you know, that that's like, that's kind of almost like feels like a lottery ticket in a way. Like it feels like Willy Wonka's ticket that you are in the 1% of, you know, just being recognized, being validated. Yeah. And I think with that, of course, it just feel we're so grateful for it because there are such amazing investors that we have a part of Bloom and that are truly partners on this journey. But I think with that has come this immense responsibility that will will make sure it's kind of this immense responsibility that means I will always push to do my absolute best, not just for us, but because we know that pattern recognition is a real thing in VC funding. And I want to be the reason or part of the reason, I mean, that more diverse founders get funded um, and that that pattern recognition applies in a really positive way in the future because it is a huge responsibility. Um, And, you know, I told you, Jamie, like I've learned to shift my mindset from before I would really have this mindset that, wow, I'm so grateful that I'm even allowed in this room or I'm so grateful that this person will even talk to me. And I'm learning to like shift that mindset to, you know, I deserve to be in this room and I've worked just as hard as anybody else. And we have this amazing business that people are lucky to be a part of. And that's taken work for sure. But yeah, I would say we don't take being a part of that 1% lightly. And I think overall for women, like for female founders, it's about 4% of VC funding. Um, Yeah. So that's something that we, we put a lot of weight on and obviously want to see that number go up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, you said earlier, you know, you kind of came up positively out of what was like one of the hardest things you had ever faced. And, you know, 
we work together. So I know that's true. Like you really did come out positively. It continues to track in that direction. Um, if you could, you know, kind of go back in time and see when that shift started to happen from being like in crisis, like devastation mode to seeing another, another path. Um, do you remember what was happening there or what helped you or what stories were you telling yourself to find that new path and direction? Yeah. So, I mean, tangibly, you know, as Taryn mentioned, after we were able to close that small bridge round and, and even before that, we basically just sprang right into action to do what we needed to do to stay alive as a company and ensure that we were still around. Um, and so we started cutting costs wherever we could. We made probably like 30 different variations of projections for all the <laughs> situations and scenarios that we could imagine. We had to cut costs, you know, everywhere that wasn't bringing in an ROI. Um, you know, unfortunately, it included some layoffs, which were really, really tough to do. And again, something that Taryn and I had to do for the first time. Taryn and I also took salary cuts, but we were able to lean on the people around us who were navigating these same problems alongside of us. And we were able to ask for help and guidance when we needed it. And so while it felt like we were guessing, and in some cases, I think we're still in that, we're still guessing, we're still redoing our projections regularly, we're still, you know, doing different scenario planning, just to ensure that we're on track. And, and a lot of those things I think we'll be doing for a lot longer. But one thing that Taryn and I knew for sure is that we wanted to come out of this whenever that might be, to really be able to look back and say that we did everything that we possibly could and everything that was in our power and everything that we needed to do to ensure that we would still be here as a company after this pandemic was over. And I think really the driving force in that is that we know that the world needs bloom and that our mission is necessary and probably more necessary after the year we've had in 2020. And so every single day we were just waking up with that being the thing that was really guiding us and keeping us going even in the hardest times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It really like struck me when you said, and I felt that you meant it, like the world needs, needs bloom. Was that part of the story that helped you through the moments that felt really hard? Yeah. And I love that question, Jamie, because I think the stories that we tell ourselves when we navigate hard times are the make or break, you know, <laughs> for, for, the, for how we get through these times. So, you know, I don't want to just say the positive story that we tell ourselves now, because I think it's also helpful to, for people to hear maybe what the, the other narratives were when we were <laughs> struggling. So in 2020, I talked to a lot of female founders and I think there was so many negative stories that we could focus on, like what we just talked about, about only 1% of funding going to women of color and just so much being broken in our current system. Like for me personally, I felt really jaded in 2020 when I saw all these female founders being removed from the, their positions in their company or doing things that led to their removal. And I felt, wow, there's so few of us already. And I just was kind of angry about the ultra critical eye placed on them versus versus male founders. And it made me think, will the rest of us struggle to raise money now? Um, but I think the new narrative after letting myself feel these feelings is let this be the fuel to break glass ceilings, to know that we all have a place in this and 
the women before us paved the way for us to be here and for those who will come after us. And like we've talked about with you, Jamie, we all have a role in this and it won't be a perfect linear path because growth never is. Um, but for me, I, I really had to remind myself that there are negatives to focus on, but I have to really just feel that feeling and move forward and not get stuck in it and remember that we are on our own journey. And the truth is there isn't a playbook for what is happening right now. And like Bunny said, I want us to always be in a position to own our own destiny. So even though our series A fell apart, it doesn't mean that bloom is falling apart. And so um, at the beginning, I wondered if we had to then lower our expectations and our dreams for what bloom would be. And the narrative changed and I decided no. Again, like Bunny said, the world needs Bloom and Bloom will still be a global company that raises girls' confidence and becomes a household name. So now the new challenge is how do we match our pre-2020 vision to our post-2020 world? And our new narrative is building sustainably and building to be around for many years to come. And that feels right. I have a curious question when I hear sustainable. I mean, are you working through a system right now? Maybe as a first question. Um, and does that, does that system allow or align with this idea of being long-term sustainable? For me, it goes back to the concept of there being a playbook. And in the D2C world, people always talk about this playbook. And usually the playbook involves a lot of venture capital funding, um, and, you know, pretty big net losses often. And I think for us, that was never really fully um, in line with how Bunny and I wanted to build a business. Not the, not the venture part, but the um, losing money or being severely unprofitable. So I think be, building from a place that is just more sustainable and means that the business can be around longer. Um, obviously, it's, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do when you're in a system where, you know, I think 43% of VC dollars right now go to Google and Facebook, which is mind blowing. Um, but that's kind of the system that we're all playing within. So really for us, it's just simple going back to putting the consumer at the center of our thought process and, you know, really thinking about what our audience needs and that shift in the world that we want to see. And kind of looking at it through that lens rather than focusing on um, growth at all costs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That actually is a point that I think is a really great segue to something else I wanted to talk about, which is it just sort of feels like women, especially BIPOC women, we're pretty accustomed to being in challenging situations because of the limitations that have been placed. Speaking about the systems. Um, and it's, it feels like it's sort of been like this kind of forever, um, but somehow we're still here. I mean, we're better than here. We're, we're even doing better or more than okay, despite those obstacles. And this just makes me think about women. I, I think about the people I come from, um, all the forms of how people are marginalized and somehow still rising um, in the face of that adversity. And something you were just saying just now about not following the playbook, right? Means you have to, I guess, create a new playbook or think 
or look from a different lens. But it is that it is that resilience, it is that ingenuity, it is that creativity, that um, gumption to like invent another way as a virtue of survival. That you know, listening to that story just really reminds me of of how how proud I am of that. Um, and I just wonder if that feels true about your own experience, whether at Bloom or otherwise. I love that question. And I think the crazy thing is that maybe that's something that we all don't reflect on enough. I know definitely I don't. But like you said, you know, BIPOC women or, or people of color, minorities, we keep going and we keep fighting because it's something that we have to do and it's something that we get to do. Even going back to what we were talking about for, you know, where we come from and our parents and, and then being immigrants and showing up in a new country and building something from nothing and and then communities being built out of that and, you know, new generations being formed. And I think that really comes down to the same question, which is, that we don't always think about the mountain that's ahead of us that we're climbing. Um, we just strap up and we just start going and we figure it out along the way. And we find our communities and support each other in building and repairing and creating. And I think that's what you know women or immigrant folks or marginalized people have done and it's what we continue to do. And I think that when it feels like the world and all of its systems are against you, it's almost harder to sit in silence and allow other people to dictate what you can do and what you can't do. And you feel like this like fire inside of you that just pushes you to shout louder and to do everything you can to break down these systems. And often these systems are the same ones that have oppressed the generations before you. And I think what's most amazing is that this fight happens in so many different ways. It's everything from, um, you know, being, a mother of the first generation in a new country and raising your children to have everything that you didn't have um, or becoming a teacher and leading the next generation of students or being the first person in your family to get a college degree or organizing in your own community or going into politics or starting a business like all of these acts of of fighting against the systems happen in so many different ways for for women or for BIPOC people or marginalized people and I think it's just so incredible that it can't be stopped. It's just something that I think is ingrained in us. Mm. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you talking about communities as being a support system that provides a way forward. It makes me think about something called collective power. So there are different forms of power. You have your personal power, your role power, your status power, and then collective power. And as you move through the world as a woman or a woman of color or really any marginalized person, you might not have your role or status power. And so that's when accessing your personal and collective power becomes really important. Important like a, like a vital life force. And this idea that we can become more when we are together, it's real, right? And it's even more powerful when we are directing ourselves towards a common goal. Actually, this has me thinking about how much we're seeing so much of this in the last few years. Collective power in action, like the Women's March, Black Lives Matter, Fridays for the Future. And then of course, the Farmers March in India, which is happening right now. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you know about what is happening in India? Yeah, thank you, Jamie, for asking this. First, I think the farmers in India, they're entrepreneurs. They work day in and day out to feed their families. And currently today, the people um, 
in Punjab and also across the country in India are, are protesting oppression from the Indian government, um, in particular the disenfranchising farm laws in India. And I think a lot of people have probably seen this in the news because it is what they're saying is the biggest protest in human history. And there's millions of people in Delhi standing in solidarity. There are elders marching and leading the way. There is song and dance and food. But I think it, it is really important to talk about because it's happening right now. And to Jamie's point, we've seen what collective power can do and how it is broadening and how really the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, has done this for so many of us. And it's really just brought in this awakening that I think so many people knew and they're like, oh, well, thank you all for joining us here and seeing this, seeing that this has been happening for years and years. And, you know, I think um, when I look at what's happening in India right now, one, I'm just so proud of these people for really speaking up against these bills. India is like one of the biggest or maybe the biggest democracy in the world and they're losing that and you know i don't want to get into too much of that right now because it would just be a whole nother podcast um but it's really important that people stand up for this and i've seen a lot of people of color founders from various parts of india really also come together to help raise funds and awareness and so i think that really has shown me the collective power of not just feeling helpless when we see these things, but actually being able to come together to make a change. And this really reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Martin Luther King. And the quote is, in a real sense, all life is interrelated and all men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. Mm. I really love that. It just feels like truth. I hold this belief that if we were able to come together and really kind of work through our challenges together in that kind of interconnected way, not only am I lifting myself up, but I'm witnessing my sister get lifted up. And just by her being lifted up, I am lifted I believe that um, being in that collective atmosphere, being in a place of that held specific commonality and also the differences will um, elevate us all. Um, I'm gonna ask like a pretty silly question, but why do we need more BIPOC women founders? Um, I think just to start again in its simplest terms and, and speaking directly from experience. Um, as a consumer company for us, we need companies made by people who look like people who use the products. Um, for a long time, there's been companies created by executives who have no real tie to the product and their whole, you know, driving force is the monetary gain behind, you know, creating this company and creating these products and often, you know, using the cheapest ingredients that they can in order to make the most amount of profit that's possible. Um, but I think having companies made by people who use the products, um, and, and, and in this case, BIPOC women founders, um, 
we've time and time again proven to not only provide shareholder value and build profitable companies, but also tie that product and that mission directly to something that is solving a problem for the people who are using these products. And often that market is extremely underserved. Um, and often, you know, there's a lot of buying power in those markets and they're just overlooked and ignored. And I think startups and businesses obviously exist to solve problems. That's why that's why we do what we do. And they're problems that we all face. And yet, like we discussed, you know, 99% of funding goes to people who aren't BIPOC women. And so therefore, the owners of these companies and the founders of these companies who are creating products that are seemingly meant to serve the problems of people who look like us, there's definitely a gap there. And so I think in general, most of us, if not all of us, want to have a world and live in a world where there's equality. And, and to do so, that also means economic equality. And that means uh, rising up and, and joining together with BIPOC women founders to create and become leaders and give them the support that they need so that other BIPOC women feel comfortable working in these spaces and have the same opportunities. And we can really fill that economic gap and actually create um, change for the next generations yeah i know jamie when you asked this question you said it sounds like a silly question and in this conversation i'm realizing what a powerful question it is and maybe so the question is why do we need more bipoc founders or more women founders and i think maybe for the audience this is one question to think about as well, like as well as us thinking about it. I think it's just an important question for everyone to ask themselves. Um, but for me, one thing that's been kind of like that I've been thinking about is we've come so far. For my mom, who's just one generation apart from me, she probably wouldn't have been allowed in many boardrooms, um, you know, in if it were in India or, you know, where her family grew up actually in Kenya. Um, there's stories I've heard where you know, there were certain roles women weren't actually allowed to take in businesses and maybe they wouldn't have been encouraged to go for it like we are. And um, even in law school, I remember being told the attrition rate of women leaving the career. And my first legal job, I didn't negotiate my pay when I was offered the role. And I'm really grateful to my boss who had then said to me, you know, every man that comes in here and accepts a job negotiates his pay and you didn't. So I just want to give you the opportunity to do so and just also tell you that from now on in your career, you should negotiate your salary. And that was a game changer for me. And I'm still so grateful to that boss that I had. And now whenever anyone in, at Bloom negotiates their salary, I'm really, really happy, even though, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's obviously tough from a boss perspective, but um, you know, I'm genuinely happy about it. And so I think we we need this for other founders in the ecosystem because women are starting businesses at a really rapid rate and they need to be resourced the same way other founders are resourced. And I think for investors, this comes down to also asking like, what are the questions I'm asking this founder? And are they the same questions that I'm asking a male founder? And what are the assumptions that I'm making? And really just kind of all of us digging into our own biases because we all have those. And, you know, at the end of the day, you guys, um, Bunny and Jamie, you've already shared the business case for this. We all know that the numbers add up and 1% is just unacceptable and unexcusable. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for providing some clarity around, you know, how could someone 
just even interrupt their thought and ask something different. Because if, if the, if, if there really is a four point something trillion dollar blind spot, and maybe you actually would like to tap into that, maybe you might be actually in your own way. You know, what do I need to do to either interrupt my own thought or to add um, team members around me that don't have to interrupt their thought? Like they just get it. They don't ask themselves whether this is a fit or not. It is a fit because they understand. I'm gonna just shift gears for a second. Um, because I'd really love to take some time to also talk about feminine leadership, just the idea of feminine leadership. Um, I'm curious to know, how would you describe feminine leadership? Um, I think for me, it's an honest way of leading. And feminine leadership doesn't mean, I think the things that sometimes on the outside we would assume it to mean, which is you have to be really kind or emotional or soft. Um, and sorry for the lack of better terms, um, but I think it means that there's more than one way to lead. And when I say an honest way of leading, it really comes down to allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and allowing ourselves to sit in that vulnerability. I think often when we think about business, it's tied to words like, you know, you're going to war or you have to you know, you have to do things in a transactional way and it's always, you know, what's in it for me and what am I getting out of this? And in reality, business is just all about relationships. And in order to have strong relationships, we have to be vulnerable. Um, we all know that. And I think it's so much easier to lead from a place of, of not being vulnerable and to just, you know, tell yourself these stories that, oh, I had to do what I had to do and it's business. So this is what it is. And, you know, sometimes, and sometimes there's a place for that, but I don't think that there's always a place for that. And I think that when I think of feminine leadership, it means that there's also a place to lead from vulnerability and to have relationships that you feel you're actually being yourself in and to treat people the way that you would want to treat them if you weren't in a business relationship with them, but you were in maybe a friendship with them. And I think that it's so scary to shift into leading from vulnerability because it's more uncertain and you're opening yourself up to, I think, things that maybe you wouldn't open yourself up to if you were to lead in a more masculine way. But when I think of feminine leadership, the thing that stands out to me the most is really just choosing how I react to certain situations in a way that I feel good about and that make me feel like I'm proud of my actions and, and what I did in that situation feels true and authentic to who I am. Yeah, I love what Bunny said and I agree with all of that. And I think the thing I would want to add is that, um, and Jamie, this is something that you mentioned as well, is that it's actually available to all of us. And it's not just like something that women have, you know, we all have masculine traits and we all have feminine traits. And there are a lot of times where I feel like I operate from maybe a more masculine, um, kind of masculine trait way in my leadership at times. And like Bunny said, there's kind of a time and a place for both. Um, I think for me, what I've had to learn is recognizing that the default model is maybe more masculine. And because we weren't, like we just talked about, we weren't always in the workplace before um, or in the workforce in the, in the kind of way that we are now, there isn't really a model. And so for me, it really comes down to when making business decisions or people decisions, operating from a place of love and not fear. Because I think we've all heard this before as well. We always have the choice to operate out of love or out of fear, the two dominant emotions. And 
either of those can rule us. And so I think to Bunny's point, just taking that extra minute to think about where, where we're operating from. And I kind of just want to say this and, you know, I, I think I want to say this because I don't think everyone thinks about it, but for women founders or women entrepreneurs or just women in the workplace, there's something that we all kind of deal with that I don't think maybe men don't necessarily do. And this is what I think can lead to a lot of women creating like an armor at work. And that's the fact that like you, you might go into a VC meeting feeling really fierce and ready to pitch your business. And then you walk into that meeting and the VC calls you sweetie. And that can kind of just send all of that, like, you know, all that confidence you've built up, it can just kind of not shatter it, but it's just, it's a bit deflating. And, you know, you could be called sweetie by your employees and that's happened to me. You could be asked on a date by a potential employee. And so I think as a female founder, you have to build a lot of confidence to navigate this like a badass and to continue to operate out of love and not build an armor, which in some cases, to be honest, it's easier to then just operate out of like masculine leadership. And I think that's kind of happened. It's happened to me. And what one founder who gave us like a fireside chat in the early days of the business, she gave an analogy of salmon swimming upstream and the salmon being women in the workplace because the workplace itself was kind of created more so for men. And so as women were then swimming upstream in this environment, and that can be everything from the air conditioning being cranked up really high to the loudest voice in the room gets heard. And so uh, we all just kind of have to learn to question where we're coming from. Are we operating on autopilot or are we operating thoughtfully? Hmm. Um, I don't know, two thoughts appeared as you were sharing one was the whole salmon upstream thing. I was like, oh, was that true for me? It was true, but I didn't even know that that was what was happening. Right. It was kind of like, um, isn't this just how it is? Like just, you know, because there were no models, right? There wasn't like another, you know, it's not like my mom was accelerating in her career or something that made me see like what that could look like. But, you know, I was doing my job. I was also being an executive. And I I think I just like automatically like excluded myself from the total experience of what that could be, of the total experience of like holding that influence, power, you know, any of those things that all I really was able to have was like a modified version of that. And somehow I wasn't challenging that thought very rigorously. Does that... Is that relatable or does that make sense? It makes so much sense because I remember in the early days of being an entrepreneur, when people would ask me about being a female entrepreneur, I would actually feel irritated because I was like, I'm just an entrepreneur. And I didn't even want to <laughs> recognize that. Um, so yeah, that, that really resonates. Yeah. And it's almost, I know exactly what you mean. Like I didn't want to be the woman in the room for the sake of being the woman in the room, but also like in this space, like where I'm sitting with you two, where I'm like, yeah, we are women of color in the world trying to do something. And it's something to shine on and like come around. 
So, okay, so feminine leadership, it has a lot of, like, there's a lot of great qualities about it, right? Like, I don't need to operate out of fear. Actually, I want to, like, create a prosperous world there where there is enough for everyone because I believe that that's possible. So to me, when I even, like, say that language, I feel better. Right? I feel better. I, like, I feel energy. Like, I feel possibility. Um, so there is some kind of promise here when you lean into this um, feeling of feminine leadership. And so I'm sure there are a lot of men who are listening, right? And, you know, maybe I hope there's um, um, a man listening or even a woman who's listening, who's just never thought about that and just said, well, that sounds actually kind of nice. Like maybe like I would like some of that. What, you know, as, as women who identify as being um, leaders, who lead with feminine leadership, what would be um, like a recommended first step to share with somebody who's like, I think I, I think I would like some of this feminine leadership. I think the first step to take is to give yourself permission and allow yourself to feel scared and vulnerable. Um, I think anytime we're doing something new, we have to allow ourselves that, but especially with feminine leadership, because we're opening ourselves up in a way that maybe we haven't before, um, to really just sit with yourself in that vulnerability and maybe that fear um, and, uh, and get comfortable in that before taking the next step. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Almost like feel, feel, <laughs> just feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it's okay to feel something might be the first place to begin. Yeah, I really, I really like that. It feels both so obvious and simple, but also incredibly scary for a person who doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. And I will say, like, it, it doesn't come easy all the time. There are times where I often find myself being like, I'd way rather just react to this mm. in my anger and my rage and just say what you know, the first thing that comes into my mind. And I think, like we said, maybe there's a time for that, but there's also times when I I know that I have to lead from a place of vulnerability and that is so much harder for me um, to do. And I have to check in with myself and sit in that fear and vulnerability and build up the courage to do so. Mm It feels like that there's more possibility for something different to be created if you allow yourself the space and time for feeling. Okay, so I really love how Bloom calls self-care the new going out. Has the concept of self-care changed for you? Um, I think for myself, definitely. If there's anything that I've realized, it's that self-care doesn't have to look a certain way, um, but it's really the small acts of love and grace that we show ourselves throughout the day, every day. I think just thinking about how it's evolved for me, it's really coming back to that kind of concept of sustainability and what I need to be sustainable, and and that is just small acts of, of kindness to myself throughout the day. Um, you know, the origins of self-care come from the 50s, 
Um, I think they originally coined them as survival programs, um, and this came from the Black Panther movement, and then later the women's rights activists who, you know, took from what was created and said, okay, well, we, we need to apply this here because we also aren't getting our basic rights and needs met. And um, learning about this made me think about how it feels like we might be in a res renaissance of this, like we might be in a re renaissance of survival programs. Um, you know, it, to me, I, I'm like translating it more in my mind as thrival programs, right? Like how do we thrive while we are in our own and various ways not having our basic needs met? And given the gap that exists in the funding ecosystem, um, and the systematic issues that support that, it feels like women founders who have it even harder, <laughs> BIPOC women founders who have it even harder still, it feels like there should be like a call to be more deliberate and creating like a version of a survival thrival program as an integrated part of life in order to do this hard work. And, you know, I was wondering about your thoughts on that. Like, I, I have a I have an idea of what you think about that because of how you do what you do, um, but you also have a pulse on like a community that's around you, and I was wondering more about what are you seeing or not seeing around you in terms of other founders caring for themselves in these more kind of deliberate ways. I think it's really important to honor the beginnings of where this term came from, and. The interesting thing is that people are looking for self-care because in 2020, the searches for the term self-care were actually at an all-time high. And mm. like Google showed that searches for self-care surged in 2020. And as founders, I think the first and foremost thing to remember is that this is a marathon and not a sprint, but that can be really hard to remember because as founders, we always need to kind of keep pushing ourselves. And Ariana Huffington talks about this a lot. And it's always stuck with me that story she tells about collapsing and waking up in a pool of her own blood, um, which is a pretty gory story. But, um, you know, just this um, culture of sleep deprivation and Elon Musk only sleeps five hours a day and has five companies. And all of this is just kind of ingrained in a lot of us founders. And for us, we've kind of tried to implement wellness check-ins in a small way with our team. So, you know, daily when we check in and we talk about the work we're doing, we also do a wellness check-in. So how's everyone feeling out of 10 and a bit of a gratitude check-in. And that can allow us to take an inventory of where people are at. And when it comes to the founders around us, I think we see both, but I think like in the last year, what I've seen a lot of is just founders putting a lot of demands on their bodies and, you know, in many cases, just kind of feeling disconnected from their body until they're stopped in their tracks by an unfortunate like health event. And it's more common than I think all of us like to admit. And again, not always talked about. And this can range from mental health to physical health. But I mean, Jamie, you're a coach. So I think you probably see a, a lot more of this than the rest of us. Um, curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I think in general, when people are expecting that they should be and do everything all the time, yeah, creates illness. And for sure, I've seen examples of that. I think that there is really a price to be paid to be 
kind of operating in, again, that old playbook, right? The playbook, well, certainly never really included women. And I don't think it really included this thing called the feminine. And so we've been operating at this like hyper masculine state. And yeah, and I do think that that's what's leading to um, some of the things that we're seeing and and seeing it a lot in, in young founders. And these are the founders that I'm really excited about seeing like be very healthy and being around for a really long time. And I guess that's what um, makes me feel passionate about this idea that we have to be really deliberate. We have to be smart. And being smart and deliberate about this also means just like, also just like have your feelings. Have your feelings, take a breath, take a breather, you know, whatever is your version of caring for yourself, like listen to your body and what does that need? So, you know, the last thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, just what is awesome about being a woman leader right now? I mean, we're talking on this like really amazing day. It's Wednesday, January 20th when we're recording this. And we have a new, well, we, even though it's not our country, it still feels like a we. I'll take this as a we. Um, A new Madam Vice President who is half Southeast Asian and black. So what is awesome about being a woman leader today? And I really mean today, 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 as of recently, um, you know, cause I, I feel like I'm hearing it ever since I've, ever since I've come back in the new year and talking to my clients, you know, these are the sort of things I'm hearing. Like, it feels like I'm a part of a tidal wave. Another client says, I feel more powerful now and I don't know exactly why. It's like there's a growing swell. What do you think is making it so great to be a woman leader right now? It feels really good to be part of shaping the new world, um, for lack of a better term but to be part of the leadership that's gonna create the next generation of leaders and to be part of the leadership that's going to change the staff that only 1% of venture funding goes to BIPOC women and to be part of the tribe of women that we've been lucky enough to get to know over um, our journey and to be teaching and growing and learning and supporting together. And it just feels like there's a lot of power and strength and inspiration in that Um, and knowing that makes the hard times a little easier Um, and it also makes me get out of bed every single morning knowing that my contribution is helping um, move in the right direction. And I, I, I get the sense from you all in general, it's like just feeling like you're part of something much larger, you know, big, bigger than Bloom, bigger than Taryn, bigger than Bunny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there really is a tide turning. And there's this quote that I've also been hearing a lot of during this pandemic of um, we should never let a good crisis go to waste. And I think that's a quote that's been around for a really long time in previous recessions. But I'm reinventing that quote for myself to look at this with new eyes and to look at this as an opportunity. Um, and if I wasn't going to let this crisis go to waste, um, for me, what, what's exciting to me right now is how can I create a business that is a success, both in my eyes and 
like the lens that I'm looking at this through, but also in the eyes of, you know, the larger ecosystem that I want to really be a part of and contribute to. And what does that contribution look like? Because this generation of founders, both male and female founders, I think, are redefining and rebranding what work is. And mm. so I think we have this it's really unfortunate to see how many women dropped out of the workforce in 2020, which is very contradictory to what I would think happened now that we are all remote and we can work from home. Um, but I think just because so much of the household work, the brunt of that does fall on women. I think maybe a lot of households made that decision. I mean, I don't know what happened there, but I think because now there's, there's this, our eyes are open to this new flexibility and we're at this ground zero of being able to create a new way of working. I think that we are able to then kind of take that this opportunity and this crisis to reinvent that together. And the other thing I've been thinking a lot about is like, what is the biggest domino for Bloom? And that's so for me, and what I'm stoked about is that like settling on the fact that the education and empowerment of women and girls is that domino for Bloom, um, then that means that we're able to actually create more confident and tenacious women who can then, you know, go out and be in the world and do the things that, that they want to do. I think that's what's really exciting to me as a female founder right now. And we're so glad that you're doing this work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Taryn. Thanks, Bunny. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Jamie. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, Head to reboot.io slash podcast to explore past and present seasons of our podcast conversations. To help more people find and enjoy the Reboot podcast, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find our step-by-step guide for leaving reviews in the show notes of each episode. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you'll never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. At Reboot, we often talk about the value of relationships in mirroring back to us our blind spots. Now, all honest feedback is valuable, and it's great if your culture supports a constant flow of feedback. But it's often helpful for leaders to take deeper dives into radical self-inquiry, giving themselves focused and intentional space to examine the patterns of behavior that are either serving them or not serving their teams and their missions. 360 reviews are a really powerful tool that can help leaders make course corrections, supporting both individual growth and the growth of the company. While there are many approaches to 360s out there, what we have found to be the most helpful to our clients is to approach the 360s as an extension of the coaching conversation. Most leaders don't care how they rate numerically on a list of abstract capacities. And even if they do, it's tough for them to really know how to make use of that kind of data. But if they can hear through the voices of their colleagues, how their behavior is making impact, 
and if they can be helped by a coach to see more clearly the choices available to them for change, the benefits can be immense. If you'd like to learn more about Reboot360s, you can go to reboot.io/360.